1: And I'm Tracy Alloway.
0: Tracy, I'm very excited about today's episode, obviously. You know, we, we talk a lot about economic theory mm. on the show. We talk a lot about how, like, changes have, uh, in economic thinking have changed from, you know, now and pre-crisis and so forth. We talk about the sort of condition of the macroeconomy quite a bit. But, you know, not as much on the actual, I guess, specific policymaking side.
1: Yeah, um, well, today is a chance for us to put theory into practice, I guess. And we've been talking basically a a year now about this idea of the handoff to fiscal policy, this movement from monetary policy to fiscal stimulus being more important for economies post-COVID. And now's our chance to actually dig into how fiscal policy is enacted and how people in power are thinking about it.
0: Yeah, exactly right. So like that is, of course, a huge theme, a huge discussion, the sort of the post, I guess I would say, you know, the, the lesson of the last year is that fiscal pow- firepower has been incredibly uh, effective at reviving the economy. And there is certainly an increased openness, it feels like politically and also intellectually to really take a more expansive view of what government spending and uh, taxation power is uh, capable of in terms of building a new economy and sort of not leaving all of the, so many of the, so much of the decision making to um the central bank.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And we are seeing even you know if you think back a couple of years even the idea of massive fiscal spending things like direct payments to Americans were kind of on the fringe, but yeah. now not only have we seen that happen, but people are talking about other things for future crises, such as automatic stabilizers, things like that.
0: Yeah, exactly right. It feels like it's a time of of openness to new Mm. ideas, which often is the case after a big crisis. Anyway, I want to jump right into our discussion today because we have the perfect guest with the perfect perspective to talk about all this. We're going to be speaking with Jared Bernstein. He is a member of the White House's Council of Economic Advisors, Right now, advising the president on economic policy, and he was the previously he was the chief economist and economic advisor to then Vice President uh, Joe Biden, coming out of the Great Financial Crisis. So he is truly an extraordinary perch, extraordinary position, uh, great perspective to talk about today and the past and everything that's going on. Uh, Jared, uh, thank you so much for joining Odd Lots.
2: Well, thanks so much for inviting me. I think the right way to start is to say long-time listener, first time caller," as they say. Uh, <laughs>
0: That's great. I <laughs> love hearing that.
2: I've taken many a jog, accompanied by the two of you, uh, which has huh. uh, both wow. helped you know burn calories and learn something while I'm running. So,
1: uh, uh, well, we're all that. about physical fitness. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you're the second person recently to actually cite our podcast in uh, contributing to burn calories, which is, you know, it's nice to be listened to by influential people and stuff, but we really want to help people lose weight. So (laughs) that uh, that really means a lot. But, you know, I want to start actually with something um, kind of specific. So we're in this, I think, pretty extraordinary moment. Economic growth is much faster than I think a lot of people um, would have guessed the willingness of the government over the last year, both under the last administration and this one to use, engage in aggressive fiscal expansion is uh, truly historical. But there is this other bill uh, or possibly set of bills that the White House is aiming to pass later this year, and I want to get into those. But right now, everyone's talking about inflation, lumber prices, gas prices, and so forth. We know that the Fed is planning on basically really looking through that, understanding it's transitory, but. From a political perspective and thinking about the task ahead of you this summer in sort of building support for more aggressive fiscal firepower infrastructure, is that a political challenge? You know, this, this sort of thinking about, OK, we need to uh, convince members of Congress and the Senate to spend a lot more money at the same time the news is filled with stories about rising prices.
2: Well, I think anything you undertake in Washington, given the legislative environment, is a political challenge. But you're very much correct to think about this, at least from my perspective and that of our economic team, from the perspective of political economy or the intersection of uh, politics and uh, the kind of economics concerns embedded in your question. From the inflation perspective, it's really, really important to separate the American Rescue Plan from the Families and Jobs Plan, because the former, right. the former is very much in the spirit uh really of relief more than stimulus. And that, that that's right. a subtle difference, but one that I think it probably isn't lost on this audience, uh, where stimulus is often about trying to quickly address a demand shock and get people back into the economy where relief is more about helping people and businesses get to the other side. But putting that distinction aside for a second, there's a big difference between direct impact payments or the checks you were just referencing and enhanced unemployment benefit, uh, PPP loans, things like that. And uh, a set of investments that spend out over eight to ten years, uh, from from both from the perspective of of, uh, kind of the the political economy or the kind of the uh, politics of those different initiatives, and uh, to your question, from the perspective of inflation, I think it's actually quite a non sequitur to talk about the jobs and the family plan. And the kind of, you know, monthly inflation reads that we're d- digging into right now that are very much driven by base effects, by uh, what we, we believe to be transitory supply demand misalignments uh, by some of the pent up demand and the elevated savings rates and investments in long term clean energy uh, initiatives, uh, advanced manufacturing, standing up a care sector Measures, which I'm sure we can get into from the Families and Jobs Plan, pretty different creatures from the perspective sure. of price pressures.
1: Well, just on that subject, is there anything the administration could do to expand capacity for things that are in short supply? So, I'm thinking, you know, lumber is obviously important for housing. Corn prices have also surged; uh, important source of food, animal feed. Uh, semiconductors have already been discussed by the administration as being strategically important. But is there more that you could do? Would you be inclined to do more? So let me begin
2: my answer there uh, with, with a very firm statement, which may sound a little tangential to your question, Tracy, but I don't think is, um, which is that when it comes to managing inflation, that is first and last beginning and end. Uh, <laughs> I, I, how, how, I want to just really emphasize this Uh, The remit of the Federal Reserve, not the White House. Clearly, we are tracking carefully, monitoring uh, inflationary developments. And by the way, not just in the data, which we're doing with the regular data, the high frequency data, but also anecdotes. I mean, this is something we're tracking extremely carefully. But when it comes to managing price pressures, that's the job of the Federal Reserve. Yeah, so that 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 kind of independence of the Fed is a huge value of of, of course our administration. That said, um, you raise a perfectly legitimate question that is addressed by uh, some of uh, the measures in uh, the Jobs Plan. In particular, you mentioned semiconductors. So there's a, a $50 billion uh, investment in the uh, in the Jobs Plan to help promote and onshore uh, some critical supply chain. Uh, aspects, including semiconductors. But this is not something that happens, you know, right away. I mean, as as I was mentioning to Joe, you know, obviously, unlike the rescue plan, the jobs plan still has to be legislated, but it takes a couple of years to stand up a semiconductor plant. When it comes to addressing what we're looking at as transitory misalignments uh, between supply and demand and some of the sectors you mentioned, I think right there we have to think about the sort of elasticities or response functions that um, occur in markets where, you know, demand for lumber sends a signal to to sawmills to activate uh, lines that have been dormant. And there there are misalignments that evolved throughout the course of the pandemic, where uh, I think some key actors took down production, not foreseeing that it would come back as quickly as it did and those sorts of things yeah you know, that that's not you know, necessarily a position for an administration to intervene in. Uh, but we'll see how that evolves uh, as uh, as time unfolds.
0: Well, on that note, and this is a theme that we talk about a lot, which is the you know we supply and demand sometimes get discussed as if they're like these sort of very distinct, separate things, and two lines intersect on a chart, and there's the price. But of course, as you basically just alluded to, You know, we lost we've lost a lot of supply in part because of weak demand. And so we lost sawmill demand over the last decade after the great financial crisis with the mediocre housing recovery and tech capex hasn't been impressive in your thinking about investment. And, you know, again, the longer term investment, do you think about basically this idea of maintaining demand, whether it's direct purchases of equipment or uh, incentives to Keep, uh, you know, growth high such that private sector actors will be uh, incentivized to continue to build out capacity and not just look at the current moment as a sort of short, short blip.
2: Yeah, generally, I would say more yes than no, although nobody I wouldn't I wouldn't use the phrase short blip because we just don't know. Right. Fair enough. We and others uh, have packed a lot into this word transitory. (laughs) <laughs> but i think what it really means is that we expect these misalignments to correct uh although i don't know that any of us really have a great feel for the timing of that because we haven't been through this before i mean like you said joe earlier this is a remarkable period we've we essentially shut the economy off and we're turning it back on that's uh you know not something that we have a lot of time series evidence on i think that's theoretically the theory of the case is kind of this law, and, and this is this is very traditional kind of Keynesian economics, is this, is this recognition that uh the world works much more in Keynesian term than in Say's law term, meaning that uh it's 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 not correct to believe that supply creates demand. It's more correct to believe that demand pulls in supply. That theory of the case is very much you know, embedded in, in my, and I would argue, our thinking in the administration. However, that said, if you look at our plans, particularly the jobs plan, but also the families plan, the longer term investment plans, what you see there is not a, you know, kind of acceptance that uh, it's it's, you know, completely up to the market to align supply and demand and deliver whatever outcomes the market delivers full stop, and we'll just stand on the sideline and observe. There's much more intention there about, for example, not just job creation, but the quality of the jobs that are created, Um, ensuring that uh, those jobs are union jobs that pay a a good middle class wage. That's one of President Biden's uh, most important marching orders to us. It's recognizing that there are serious missing markets in this economy. The care area is one where that's really pronounced, where unlike most other advanced countries, we simply don't have an affordable, accessible care sector for people who are providing elder care or child care, which those people are disproportionately women and moms, uh, to be able to find a clear path into the job market if that's what they want to do. So we have to help stand up that sector. The economy will underinvest in in research and innovation, particularly when the returns from those investments are longer term. The economy will underinvest in clean energy at, at tremendous existential cost to our survival. And so there are areas where we have to make sure that our investment meets those missing markets and uh, helps to create demand that will lead to better quality jobs and investments in underinvested sectors. Hmm.
1: So we have so much to get through, and I want to make sure we have time for everything. So uh, if I could shift gears slightly to one of the big questions hanging over, you know, Biden's spending plans, which is how are they actually going to be paid for? So I would love to know you're thinking about the deficit, I suppose. And also the proposed package includes, I think, tax hikes, well, enormous tax hikes for the rich, uh, you know, something equivalent to 1% of GDP per year. Why tax hikes to fund this particular package. And the reason I ask that is because, you know, Joe and I talked a little bit about economic opinion maybe changing uh in political circles, this idea of stuff like modern monetary theory making inroads in the administration. So, are the tax hikes because you're actually worried about funding the spending plan and deficits or is it more about seizing a political opportunity that's arisen from this extraordinary time as joe mentioned to actually tackle inequality
2: okay another great set of questions to unpack <laughs> sorry uh, I, I, I know the I, I, this will only take about three and a half hours but I'll do my best. <laughs> no I, I i i i'll try to uh, be succinct. First of all, though, I, I want to challenge an adjective you used, which is uh, enormous. Um, oh,
1: I knew, yeah. <laughs> sorry. I knew you were going to say that. I knew it that.
2: too. <laughs> and, and, well, uh, it's, it's not just saying that. Um, I happen to be looking right now at a, a new paper that just came out by the economist Mark Zandi. And in chart three of that paper, he shows the uh, Building Back Better, that is, uh, American Families and Jobs Plan tax hikes in context. And he has a bar chart of all the tax hikes. Uh, that have occurred, you know, since the 1930s. Really, it's it's really a a lot of work went into this chart, and the one at the very bottom is uh, the one we've proposed. So I think you have to recognize two things. I about-
1: rescind my adjective.
2: Okay, and, and 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 I think the reason you get that result is twofold. One is that many cases we're resetting rates to where they've been before, or not even in the case of the corporate rate, of course the Uh, the Trump tax cut took the corporate rate from 35 to 21. We take it to 28. That's our proposal. So that's kind of right in the middle. But also, and this is is most important for listeners to to recognize that these tax increases do not uh, hit anybody under 400,000 family income. And if we're talking about the capital gains tax increase, it's only above 1 million. So it only affects the top 0.3%. Okay. So now that we got that out of the way, (laughs) let's get to the kind of meaty part of of your question around how we're thinking about uh, deficits and debt. It is the president's view that uh, longer term or more permanent uh, proposals uh, should be paid for. I think that makes sense. And I think one way to recognize the sense that that makes is to look at the disinvestment in the things that the jobs plan, in particular, in, as well as the families plan, invests in research and development, innovation, the kinds of long term return investments that private firms often won't make because it, it simply doesn't fit the kind of schedule that they have to report on to their investors. If you look at infrastructure, everything from, from public education to um, replacing pipes that have lead in them. You know, there's hundreds of thousands of kids who are, are still exposed in today's America to lead in their water. That's completely unacceptable to this administration. Uh, again, I talked earlier about a care agenda, but even even traditional stuff. You know, roads and bridges. Those investments have really suffered over the long term, and if you look at the Share of GDP invested, for example, in R and D and innovation, it's gone from about uh, two percent in the sixties to about half a percent now—a big and portentous drop. Reversing those investments is uh, the point of uh, of the Building Back Better agenda. And one of the reasons why those investments have failed is because they don't have any reliable funding sources. So while I completely understand and have in fact contributed to the literature that understands deficits and debt in a new and different, and you could call it a more progressive way. I'd probably call it a a more economically and empirically sound way. I'm very much moved by that work. I also think you have to recognize that the effects of not having um, funding sources for permanent programs show up all the time in their disinvestment and uh, their insufficient Upkeep. By contrast, look at Medicare and Social Security, uh, which have held up, you know, relatively well in that space because they have dedicated funding sources.
0: We need to keep uh, unpacking this because I kind of get that, and I kind of don't. With the uh, so-called entitlements or Medicare, or Social Security, yes, they have dedicated funding sources, but they also just have laws that say these programs will exist, and they're not sunsetted. They're not temporary. They weren't five-year health programs. They were ten-year. They were permanent legal fixtures. And yes, they did come with uh, dedicated funding sources, payroll taxes, and so forth. But what makes the programs exist forever is the fact that they the laws say they have to exist forever. With some of these things that you describe, and we agree, uh, you know, or most many people would agree, they have been underinvested. How much is this a Just a just the need to pass a law that says this will always be here. So if we're talking about childcare or some sort of family leave thing to make it permanent, seems like it should just be a law saying this is a permanent benefit or it seems like it could be solved that way. And so when you draw the connection to Medicare and Social Security, is it that those taxes are needed for the programs to exist or are they needed to get the votes such that politicians are willing to make them uh, permanent?
2: No, I mean, I really think on this one, the way I kind of <laughs> laid it out is is is, you know, that sounds more snarky than I mean, is more correct than the way you just laid it out. But let me just explain. That's fine. I mean. You're, it's
0: fine. I, 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 you know, you could do that. You're the guy. We
2: actually have something called the Highway Trust Fund. Right. Uh, this is a federal accounting device wherein resources are supposed to flow to fund our highway system. And its main source of income is a nominal tax on gas that hasn't been changed in like 35 years or something and that and and, and even as you know obviously inflation has increased and the um, efficiency of of the auto fleet has increased uh the highway trust fund is always in massive trouble and it's one of the reasons why our transportation infrastructure including mass transit by the way mass transit which by the way is in the rescue plan and the jobs plan quite deeply that that trust fund has failed to support that, and the and the reason is that it's a law on the books, you know, and you know according to your theory, a law on the books should be all that it takes, uh, but it isn't. It takes more than that. I actually think if one wanted to make a a, a better you know kind of an argument against having to fund these uh, the, these uh, building back better plans, it, it would be that the return on the investments should be greater than the cost of borrowing. And, um, you know, that, that is true. And it makes sense to me. And you'll hear economists, you know, uh, some of my economist friends uh, make that point. They say, hey, look, you're going to get a return on these investments that are great, greater than your borrowing costs, which of course are historically low. So why pay for them? And I totally get the economics and the public finance, uh, kind of the uh, uh, G greater than R thinking behind that. Uh, but, but what I don't what I think it misses is is the political economy of the sustainability point that that Joe Biden just intuitively understand.
3: Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
1: So I actually wanted to ask a a big picture question on this topic. But do you think that economists grasp the political realities of putting theory into practice? And what I mean by that is, for instance, it's one thing... To say, you know, if you're an MMT person, that deficits are only limited by inflation, but it doesn't necessarily help you get to a place where people are enacting more fiscal spending if everyone can't agree on, you know, what to spend the money on.
2: I think let me answer it this way. I, I won't name names, but I was trying to I, I was trying to draft an economist to come in and, and work with us who's a, uh, uh, someone I'm, I'm really fond of, of their work. And and what I he, he's a private sector person, and what I said to him is, if you really want to understand how the economy and the nexus of the economy and government work, and and I would include theory in that nexus, Tracy, you've got to work for the government. <laughs> you can't understand it if you don't. So I do think that there is a a kind of empirical gap between what a lot of theoretical economists sort of write about. And even some empirical economists write about and a kind of tangible, granular understanding of how economic policy really works. You, mean, I think you mentioned MMT. That that's a good example because in MMT, there's there's a belief that if inflation were to take off, this is a kind of a timely point. I think if inflation were to take off, don't worry and don't. Um, assign much to the Fed, because that's just not part of the kind of cosmology there, you can just raise taxes to take money out of the economy. Well, you know, that's a a cogent theoretical point. But when applied to the real political economy and the legislative timing involved therein and the partisan squabbling involved therein, that's not, you know, a very, uh, I think, uh, realistic Solution, especially when you have a central bank whose independence allows it to get outside of the political constraints there and do what needs to be done uh, for you know very good, sound economic reasons. So I do think that there can be a gap between theory and practice, not unlike the one I just talked about in terms of uh, with to Joe in terms of why I think President Biden's view on uh, pay-for's for the investment programs makes sense.
0: Every every answer you give. I have like a billion other questions. (laughs) I want to ask another version, though, uh, kind of related to the MMT question. But, you know, I mentioned in the beginning, and as anyone who's followed your career, you were the chief advisor to then Vice President Biden coming out of the great financial crisis. All else aside, and I think there are a lot of lessons from that period, particularly the first two years. I think it's pretty clear that in both sort of the intellectual sphere and the media sphere, there is much less concern about deficits these days uh, than there was 10 years ago or 11 years ago or 12 years ago. And I'm curious if from a policy perspective in the White House, thinking about, OK, what is uh, you know, what is the best stimulus to do? What is the best way to structure spending for the next 10 years, et cetera? That new sort of environment. And if you don't think that exists, then let me know. But it feels like it does. That new environment creates more political space, creates more uh, flexibility to achieve your goal.
2: Yeah, that environment does exist. More, There's more fiscal space, and there's more political space to wield that fiscal space. Right um, Now, the fiscal space existed before, but here's an area where I think kind of empirical public finance economics has made real strides, say, from uh, the last time I was uh, in government dealing with a downturn in the uh, Great uh, Recession after the housing bust, and now and, and, and interestingly, as you point out, uh, the current president was the vice president there. And I think one of the lessons he learned is is uh, go big or go home is not just important fiscal policy when you're punching back against a, a globally threatening pandemic or last time against a uh, globally harmful financial slash housing bust, um, but there's also not only the fiscal space to do so but there's actually good research that shows if you fail to wield fiscal power, p- policy with enough power to offset the contraction your debt to gdp uh, ratio could actually worsen because you've done too little to boost the denominator gdp and uh, again there's uh, there there's i think some pretty solid research that that makes this case so i think the urgency and the intersection of good policy, a good policy and politics, boosted by high-quality economic research, has all landed us in a moment where we've recognized greater fiscal space.
1: On the topic of 2008 versus 2020, after the financial crisis, we did see a lot of emphasis on trying to fix problems in the housing market that had contributed. To the financial system melting down. So for instance, there was a lot of focus on GSE reform. One of the things that was left out in Biden's proposal were substantial changes to healthcare. And I'm just wondering what the thinking was there because I guess coming out of 2020, having experienced a massive health crisis and also needing to stimulate the economy, it seems like healthcare would be a really good area in some ways to focus on. But so far, Biden seems to have shied away from that.
2: Well, again, I think if you look at uh, a couple of different places, uh, you'll find that the the president has leaned into that and, and not really shied away. So in the joint address, there was a very important paragraph where the president spoke about how important The healthcare agenda is going to be for for our administration. There's also some similar language in the fact sheet around the family plan. I feel like we've been here for about 10 years already, but in fact, we've only been here for a few months. I think we just hit the first hundred days so um we have to move the freight on on different cars at different times but there if you look back to the campaign you'll see many areas that the the president has leaned into and he is just ticking through them with uh, alacrity with power uh with legislation and uh with you know i think you know really quite here i'm i'm somewhat patting some of my fellow deputies here in the administration on the back here you know with i think some pretty well developed policy plans so healthcare is is uh, of course it's going to be into in the mix it's 17 18% of the economy and it fits right into uh, the discussion we were having before about the public private mix and the importance of getting that right
1: so even if it's not in the actual spending bill now you're confident that something substantial is coming down the line
2: I'm not going to lean into something substantial because that begs the question of what you're talking about, and we have to run a uh, an extensive <laughs> process before we. Uh, you know, I, I I don't front run the president, which is why I still have my job. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> look look at what he said. I mean, it's actually worth reading. You know, look at what he said in the uh, in the joint address and in the family's plan because he he really does lean into what we're going to be planning to do in, in that space.
0: I want to pivot a little bit the conversation towards the Fed and of course obviously the fed's independent we, we all we all know that but you mentioned that there's the fed's remit to think about inflation and of course the White House has a role in shaping who is who is on the Fed now and who is going to be on it in the future so I want to ask a couple of questions on that but uh, you know to start with you know thinking about uh, the question of Powell he's have obviously had this sort of pretty, I I think a lot of people would say fairly radical shift for the Fed to really focus on labor, to not try to preempt uh, inflation, to uh, commit in a way that we haven't seen, to not snuffing out the recovery prematurely. That seems to be a shift. And he also seems to have um, won the respective financial markets quite a bit, which is rare. When you think about the question of a, a potential reappointment or replacement, Is that respect that he has among financial markets? Do you think that's an important thing?
2: Well, I'm definitely not going to say anything about (laughs) head personnel. You know, this is sure I used to be a a gum flapping (laughs) chin music making pundit who talked about all this kind of thing all day long. And it's hard to draw (laughs) that line now and remember that I'm, I'm I'm in the White House and, you know,
0: We're going to try. We're going to try. My goal
2: used to be to make news. Now, my goal is to not make news. So, I'm not going to make news. Let me say instead the following I talked a second ago about what I think is one of the most important advances in uh, political economy, um, which is the recognition of true fiscal space, a recognition that I think was uh, significantly fogged up uh, by views on crowding out how public borrowing would crowd out private borrowing and pressure interest rates. That has long been unsupported by the empirical record. Well, there's another important, the the, the other, you know, equally important economic development that I would put, you know, really in the stratosphere of ways that economists are better understanding how economies really work is, of course, the relationship between unemployment and inflation. And you know, in this regard, I think one of Powell's most important speeches was, I believe it was the Jackson Hole speech, when he talked about how um, because there's so much uncertainty around what we call the star variables, Y star, U star, R star, potential GDP, the natural rate of unemployment, the natural rate of interest, these are all theoretical concepts that, I you don't know if maybe it's too strong to say that can't be, but are extremely hard to be reliably estimated. By which I mean estimated within a policy-relevant confidence interval. That, that I think you know, going back to Bernanke, Yellen, uh, Powell, that the recognition that the confidence interval around those estimates is far far wider than was realized before, and that it's beyond our empirical scope to to nail them down, has led to a much more data-driven approach. Uh, to both fiscal and monetary policy, and that's a really great advance, particularly from the perspective of tightening labor markets and there uh you've heard again this dates back before powell there you've heard the Federal Reserve make critically important connections by the way, most of my research agenda uh before I took this particular job was in this space that I'm about to mention the the really important connection between achieving full employment and Pushing back on racial inequities, on uh, economic inequality, providing folks and communities are typically left behind with the kind of economic opportunities they need and deserve, that is very much linked up to achieving persistent, stable, full employment. And that and getting to persistent, stable, truly chock full employment is uh, itself be closely related to these important insights about both fiscal and monetary policy.
1: So this is something that I wanted to ask you about. So you wrote, I think it was just last year, that the Fed should consider targeting not the overall unemployment rate, but the black rate. And now we have this idea of an inclusive and broad-based employment framework from the Fed. But in your opinion, what does that actually mean? And does the central bank need to go further by perhaps setting explicit targets for black unemployment, for instance?
2: Yeah. So when I wrote that, I wasn't in the administration. And, you know, I felt that that was so I was again, I was playing chin music all day about things that I don't sing about (laughs) now. And by the way, I, I think if you look back, at least what I was trying to say was, um, was not so much that the Fed should target black unemployment, but that racial equity and monetary policy are uh, linked in the way that I was describing a minute ago. Because if you look at who benefits disproportionately from tight labor markets, it's uh, it's people in communities of color. So, and, and actually, you could see this in a way that was uh, you know fascinating to me. I was I was writing. You know, empirical papers about this crunching the heck out of every number I could find showing how persistently low unemployment was providing labor market opportunities on so many different margins, not just the extensive margin, which is pulling people into the job market who weren't there before, but as much and even more so the intensive margin giving those people way more hours of work if that's what they if that's what they wanted. And the changes for, say, African-Americans in the bottom quintile, I did a paper with a a guy named Keith Bentley on this, which you can find out there somewhere, are economically really large. So those connections, you know, uh, what, what, what I can talk about is what I mentioned in my last comment, is the intersection between critically important new insights in fiscal space, And in the relationships between unemployment and inflation, the the linkage between those insights and the ability to maintain full employment with such deep benefits uh, to to groups that are uh, too often left behind.
0: So I want to explore this point further, but I think, you know, one of the particularly tragic things about the timing of the coronavirus crisis and this setback was that right prior to it, We were seeing um, an impressive level of compression between, say, the white unemployment rate and the black unemployment rate as uh, as, you know, the economy continued to improve. so obviously there's a hope that we can get back there really fast. But it also, on the other hand, seems like unfortunate that, okay, that was a desirable state. But that came after uh, 10 years or I don't know, nine years of a very uh, disappointingly wide gap and uh, a sort of labor market that was almost nobody's idea of tight. How do you think like, okay, like we want to get back that. But and I guess this gets to the question of like, what is your what is President Biden's vision of like the future? Can we have that sustainably? Can we have that so that we always have a tight labor market and it's not just like a special treat that comes at the end of every expansion?
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. Let me talk about it from my economist perspective and then yeah. shift to the president's vision here because the, the, the latter is way more important because <laughs> he's the president. Here's a statistic that I haven't cooked up lately, but uh, so it may, this, this number changes, as you'll see, uh, but I think I'm in the right ballpark. If you look at the percentage of quarters starting around 1980, which is the period when job markets have been persistently too slack. If you look at the percentage of quarters where the unemployment rate has been above the CBO's estimate of the, of, of what the natural rate is, that is yeah. the lowest unemployment rate consistent with full employment, that ratio is 6.66, you know, 0.7, maybe yeah. 0.75, depending on the endpoints that you choose. That is most of the quarters or most of the years since 1980. This economy has been slack. And that's by a measure which, you know, probably in many years, uh, pitches the natural rate too high. So it's probably even worse than that. So the, the the foundation of your question is exactly right. We have not had tight enough labor markets. And that's one of the great insights of recent federal reserves. And uh, again, links back to uh, the importance of recognizing fiscal space. Now, Joe Biden is not an economist, but I've been talking with him about this since we sat down in his in his house in in November of 2008 and talked about uh, me perhaps coming on as his chief economist. The very first thing we talked about, he pulled out a graph that I'd made with Larry Michelle, which showed the gap between productivity growth and median compensation. Okay, so productivity growth grows, 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 not as fast as we'd like, but it does grow, you know, a percent, percent and a half per year uh, on trend. And the median compensation, the compensation workers right in the middle of the scale, was flat, flat, flat for you know not all of those years, and in fact, in the latter '90s, when the job market really tightened up, precisely like my earlier theories uh, you know were were, were trying to uh, uh, predict, that then you saw some action the, at the median. but for the most part, and by the way, Larry Michelle and Josh Bibbins have a forthcoming paper on this, which is really elucidating. You need to get a, get them on here and talk to them about it. You know, and and Joe Biden, who's the vice president-elect then pointed to that graph and said, this is what I want us to work on. I want middle class people to get a fair shake. I want to think about the policy agenda that's going to, in my words, relink median compensation and overall economic growth. And that agenda is a deep one. And now that that you see what the president is up to, that's what he's doing so unions are part of that because the as as bibbins and michelle will show have shown in, in various papers and it's going to be part of this new one as well the the loss of bargaining power for uh workers in the middle class has uh, certainly put downward pressure on wages the absence of persistent full employment as joe's question suggested is is very much in that mix the uh inaccessibility for women to uh, in particular caretakers to have a clear line of access into the job market because there's a a childcare sector that's affordable and accessible the absence of investment in in good middle class jobs in new expanding areas of the economy including advanced manufacturing clean energy uh, electric vehicles these are all parts of of the plan and at least from a kind of macro labor perspective it's all about trying to reconnect middle-class working families to the overall prosperity in the economy. And then and, and I'll finish up. That, that's, that's why, well, you know, we started this conversation saying, boy, we're getting some good growth numbers, you know, GDP uh, north of 6% in Q1. That's great. We're all for it. It does not obviate the work that I just described, because at the end of the day, If this administration achieves, you know, high GDP growth, low unemployment, a booming stock market, but it doesn't reach the middle class in the way that the president has set out for us, we have we will have failed to march to his marching orders. And that's not something I want to do.
1: Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit.
0: You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Just on the the subject of the Fed more widely, so you've emphasized in this conversation a number of times the importance of the central bank being independent from government, but We're also talking about the importance of fiscal space. I'm wondering, do you see scope for monetary policy to enhance or work in some way together with fiscal stimulus? How do you see those two things interacting?
2: Well, I think that they just naturally interact uh, all the time. And I think that what we've seen in uh, the current recovery, largely from a macro sense, Is the importance of the one-two punch of uh, fiscal and monetary policy? There is a risk going back to Keynes if uh, if you're relying on monetary policy alone of pushing on a string. That is, you can make credit as accessible as you want, but if people don't have direct impact payments or checks, you know, money in their pockets, uh, they won't have the resources take to take advantage of those low rates. So I think one of the lessons of the last. Couple of downturns is that fiscal and monetary have to work together. By the way, it, it, one way to just uh, underscore this point is to go back and and listen to what Ben Bernanke was saying to Congress back in two thousand nine two thousand ten when he was going up to Congress saying we're doing everything we can to make sure that credit markets are fluid and that borrowing costs are low, but unless people have the resources that they need which is going to involve temporary fiscal policy because the economy is still climbing back slowly, we'll, we'll be pushing on a string. So there's that. I also think that um, if properly implemented, fiscal policy and monetary policy can be complementary in terms of a regime wherein the Federal Reserve is not always looking over its shoulder at the, at the, at the, lower, at the zero lower bound. You have robust fiscal policy, and you have a monetary regime that looks less like what we've seen over the last, you know, decade or even more, where where the interest rate is is uh, you know at zero most of the time.
0: I want to ask you another question, and I kind of have a feeling you might have to answer in two ways between your economist pundit self versus your employee of the White House self. Uh, but when thinking about creating a sort of sustained high level of activity and not having these downturns that create slack that take years to overcome. Should we have automatic stabilizers such that so that we don't have to hope that Congress that the political alignment of Congress is such that they can pass a bill like the CARES Act when there's a downturn, but rather that checks automatically go out to start uh, balancing uh, counteracting a downturn right away?
2: Well, actually, this is something that the president has leaned into on occasion in some of his speeches, he's talked about the importance of that. And uh, there have been various pieces of legislation. I think the again, I think the political economy of that is is challenging because there's the discretion that Congress likes to hold on to. Right. Uh, but I think there are there are politicians, uh, quite a few um, prominent folks. I don't remember names right now because this is in some bills that agree with this proposition and that recognize that when you hit a downturn, when the economy hits a shock, it could be a, you know, whether it's a housing or a financial bubble or a pandemic or the kind of thing that hits us hard and fast, sometimes the political process can be too cumbersome. So the idea of these triggers is something that the president, as I've mentioned, has talked about uh, on occasion. But uh, I think that where we go from there, uh, I I can't speak to at this point. Do
1: you think there's an expectation now that having you know sent out direct payments uh, recently, that in the next crisis or the next time the economy falters, people will expect that kind of stimulus again. I guess what I'm asking is, do you think there's a sea change in attitudes among U.S. voters towards fiscal stimulus and especially direct payments?
2: I think there might be uh, but uh, just just for the record we should recognize that um this isn't the first time we've done that by a long shot uh, and in fact uh, uh I remember uh, checks going out under under George Bush before the uh financial crisis uh and uh, earlier uh, checks as well I think what you know happened this round is that they got out really quickly and they were of a magnitude that made a real difference uh, to people and 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 the president was talking, you know, I think before he was president in November and December, after he won the election, he was talking about how important it was to not just get uh, uh, these checks out, but to get another round of checks out. So I think your prediction about future expectations is probably correct. And I think one thing that complements that prediction is the fact that um, uh, the IRS infrastructure uh, was was stood up, you know. I think pretty pretty handily and quickly to get out. At this point, over 160 million checks. So it's it's made a real difference. All right, I just
0: have one more question. This is a topic very near and dear to me? Maybe it's my only single thing that I really care about. If there's ever another debt ceiling impasse, is the president prepared to mint a trillion dollar coin to get uh, <laughs> to circumvent it, or at a minimum, at least take advantage of uh, this? brief window where there's control of uh, both houses of Congress to at least uh, abolish the dead ceiling permanently.
2: Yeah, that's one of those things I'm not <laughs> going to lean into, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's a fair, qu- fair question. Had
0: a feeling. <laughs> All right. Well, Jared, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you uh, taking your time uh, to come on Oddline.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: That was great.
1: Thanks, Jared. Really enjoyed that.
0: Tracy, I thought that was really awesome getting to speak to uh, Jared on that. You know, the term that he kept using over and over again was political economy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what our discussions that we keep having are really all about. It really is about is like, okay, we know what the theory is. What does it actually take to get something passed or make something sustainable in D.C.? And I feel like uh, Jared just by dint of his career Just has uh, such a great perspective on all that.
1: Yeah, um, it's kind of a shame we didn't really get into the debt ceiling, but in one way, it's the perfect example of that. Right. (laughs) So the suspension is supposed to end by August and like clearly it's going to have to be dealt with at some point. But for years now, Congress has been suspending rather than actually raising the limit. So even if someone can make a rational argument for why they should permanently raise the limit, there's already, you know, people are clearly reluctant to do that. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah.
0: Well, it's also like even more importantly, almost everyone will agree, especially if they're not in politics, Mm. that the law is bad, that the idea of like a statutory debt ceiling that's disconnected from the budget is, uh, not a good system, but it's the, but we can't, but we can't get rid of it. And there's various (laughs) reasons we can't get rid of it. And there's various reasons no one has ever tried to like, uh, actually, or there's been no real attempt to abolish it. But I do think, you know, again, it speaks to the capital P politics of all this, that here's this thing, it gets in the way. It almost created a crisis in 2011 when people might think that it was going to lead to, a default on the U.S. debt, so it's it's kind of this weird little annoying thing. But it speaks to where there is this um, conflict between what uh, makes sense on paper economically versus uh, political will.
1: It goes back to that theory versus practice point, which was sort of the foundation of our conversation. Uh, you know, this idea that even if you have a big new economic thought, actually putting it into practice and coming up with specific policies to enact it might be more difficult and does require, as Jared said, an intimate knowledge of the political economy and the way things actually work.
0: Yeah, exactly right. And of course, so it's like this microcosm, but the bigger, you know, the bigger story is this sort of question of what can get passed on the spending side. And it's interesting to hear sort of Jared's perspective and also his, I guess, I guess I would say translation or Mm -hmm. uh, insight into President Biden's thinking about, okay, like if you want to like do this, like maybe economists can make this case and they probably can that a lot of this spending, particularly the investment spending, doesn't need to, quote, be paid for in the traditional sense. But it's interesting to hear the sort of the politics perspective that on some level, yes, it does. But I guess that's it's uh, I thought that was very useful.
1: Yeah, I'm also curious to see what happens on healthcare because that's another topic that's politically loaded. There seems to be consensus building in the states that there is something wrong with the US healthcare system, but actually yeah. fixing it, I mean as we've seen over and over and over again tends to be much more difficult. So that's also going to be an interesting thing to watch.
0: Yeah, no, it should be an interesting summer to see like what eventually <laughs> What eventually, you know, that's it. Seems like that's the timeline that we're looking for. Okay, next few months of negotiations, and then maybe something gets passed in September or after that. So, should have an interesting uh, few months ahead of us, watching to see like what these policies get put into place. And as Jared said, you know, like okay, we had the stimulus, but it does feel like to some extent, the legacy of the Biden administration will be much, you know, less about the recovery and more about what the what the sustained future economy. Uh, looks like uh, after that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. On that happy note, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest on Twitter, Jared Bernstein. He's at Econ Jared. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.